Well, you are in for a treat this entire weekend. Our special speaker, Bob Ronglin, is been, he's actually kind of more family than he is a special guest speaker. He has been with us the last four plus years working with us in our discipling movement and actually f- help fulfilling our vision of introducing people to Jesus, helping us become and make fully devoted followers of Christ. Now, Bob has had a very deep impact on so many of us as staff and congregation, mine included. Bob has modeled for us and helped design in us this whole new kind of family that you're gonna hear about tonight. In fact, when I was talking to Cheryl about it, when Bob and Pam, his wife, uh, came up and started to do this for us and model this, Bob and Pam stayed in our homes, and I was calculating going, they've stayed in our home more than any other family member, right? They basically have a key, and they come and go as they please. And so we have just loved doing life with them. He has impacted my life very deeply as well. Bob is a pastor, has been a pastor for many years at the local church level. He's a teacher and an author. And uh, to get him this weekend is just a gift for all of us and all of our campuses. Um, Also, at all your campuses, there's going to be two books that Bob will be kind of interacting. He is a great teacher. But this book here called The Jesus-Shaped Life, this is going to be a book that you can pick up, and it's going to be at all the campuses and in the atrium. And Bob's going to actually be signing books here at Central Campus uh, during after the service tonight. And this is how to put what he's going to talk about in practice. We have been giving this book out and selling it for many years, but it's a great tool. And his most recent book called Recovering the Way is a deeper insight to the biblical context that you're going to hear about. So this is a great book if you like getting really deep with it. If you're more practical in that, this is a great one too. Pick one of those up. They're going to be available at all our campuses. So without further ado, would you please give, including all of our campuses, a big Center Street welcome to one of our own, Pastor Bob Ronglin. Hey! I thought you were there, I'm here. but you're here. I'm here. It's good to see you, my friend. Good to see you. Oh, let me pray for you as you bring the word tonight. Thank you. So, thank you. Lord Jesus, thanks so much for our brother Bob and ask God tonight that uh, you would anoint his lips with your spirit. We thank you, God, for the way that you have led him, guided him, and directed him. And so, Father, just may we, may we hear what you've laid on his heart with open hearts and minds so that we can be more like Jesus. In your name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Wayne. Thanks, buddy. What a gift you are. Wow, what a joy to be with you guys. We have been looking forward to this and uh, praying about this. And as Wayne said, it's been, I think it's closer to six years, Wayne, that we've been interacting uh, with the leaders of Center Street, my wife Pam and I. Uh, It's just been a real gift to to come to know uh, Pastor Henry and Gwen, uh, Wayne and Cheryl, uh, Kent and Nadine, Greg and Sarah, Travis and Jesse, many other leaders of Good Shepherd, of Center Street, have become really like Wayne said, like family to us. And so it's a joy to be with you. We've worshipped here, but this is the first time that I've had the privilege to to bring the word. So very grateful for that. And speaking of family, I wanted to just introduce my family to you a little bit. Pam and I have been married for 33 years. Uh, We met as uh, missionaries and uh, have sought to live a missional life for those 33 years. We have two grown sons, Bobby and Luke, and they are married to two amazing young women, uh, Amy and Taylor. And uh, Bobby and Amy have two beautiful little girls, our granddaughters, which are the joy of our lives. And on April 1st, we have two twin granddaughters coming to join them. So we're going to double our grandchild uh, number on April 1st. So, yes, thanks, thanks be to God. So this is my family. You have a family that you think of and interact with and define in different ways. Um, but let's just think for a minute about the concept of family. When you hear the word family, when you think of family, what do you picture in your mind? Now, if you've grown up in modern North America, you probably think of a mom and a dad and their kids, right? That's, that's how we tend to think of a family in North America. If you come from a different culture, maybe you have a different picture. And in North America, when we think of a, a family home, we tend to think of that mom and dad and kids living in a single family dwelling, an apartment or a house somewhere, right? That's what we think of as family. 
But did you know that that's not really a complete biblical vision of family? That God actually has a bigger picture for us. And in fact, we're going to, to dig into that Jesus, being a single man with no children, whose own family rejected him, actually built the most amazing family ever in the history of the world, a family that has ultimately impacted the world more than any other family. So we're going to take a little closer look at this new kind of family that Jesus built. Now, as a church, you guys have been going through the Gospel of Matthew, and uh, we're going to kind of continue that. You, you've talked about uh, the baptism of Jesus, how Jesus traveled from Nazareth down to the, the Judean wilderness. Uh, I'm kind of a, a map guy, a bit of an archaeology nerd, so I'll show you a few pictures as we go. And he came to his cousin John, who was immersing people in the waters of the Jordan River. And here's what the Jordan looks like today. In fact, this is the actual place where Jesus was baptized by John. And it's amazing to go there today. And then the Holy Spirit led Jesus from the place of the baptism just to the west into the Judean desert, into the wilderness there, specifically to a certain wadi, wadi Kelt. And there Jesus spent 40 days fasting and praying and preparing and then, as you guys have been talking about these last few weeks, Jesus was attacked by the devil. He was tempted by the devil. And so that's where we're picking up the story of Jesus today from Matthew chapter 4, verse 12. Matthew says, Now when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So we see Jesus is making his way back north, up into Galilee, to his home territory. And he's heading back to his hometown of Nazareth. Now this is what Nazareth looks like today. You can see it's a, a good-sized modern city. In fact, it's the largest primarily Palestinian city in Israel today. And right in the middle of the city stands the Church of the Annunciation. You can see it there on the picture. Yeah. That's a pretty big screen, so I think you guys can see it, right? And, uh, and there it is, the Church of the Annunciation. It's the largest church in Israel today, and it's built directly over the ruins of an ancient Jewish house from the time of Jesus, which archaeologists and historians have identified as the house that Mary grew up in. So it's amazing that you can actually visit the, the remains of the house where probably where Mary had the visit from uh, the angel Gabriel who told her about this miraculous conception. Now, if you go on a tour of the Holy Land or you have been, maybe with Pastor Henry, you probably have visited this site. But right across the street from the Church of the Annunciation, underneath the convent of the Sisters of Nazareth, is a little-known discovery. It's only been rediscovered in the last several years. And it is also the ruins of an ancient Jewish house from the first century, and that the archaeology and the history points to this being the actual house of the family of Joseph. And what that means is, this is the house where when, when Mary and Joseph returned from Egypt with uh, Jesus as a young boy, this is the family uh, that they lived with. This is the house in which they lived. So it's amazing to think that Jesus spent like 30 years, that's, that's the actual doorway of the house that you see there, 30 years Jesus spent coming and going uh, through that doorway. And so when Jesus was returning to Nazareth, sometimes we don't fill in the details, but when he's returning to Nazareth, where is he, where is he going? He's going home, right? He's, in fact, he's going to this home, and he's going to his family. But when we say he's going to his family, it may not be the way that we imagine it as modern people here in North America. Because you see, in biblical times, family was extended family. That was the primary way that people thought about family. And that family lived in a multi-room house that was built around a courtyard. Here you see an artist's reconstruction of a first century house 
uh, from the area that Jesus grew up in. It's not the exact house of Jesus. We don't know, we don't have enough of the remains to say the exact layout. But this is how the houses were built. Multiple rooms around a central courtyard with a single door giving access to that area. And this is where an extended family made up of multiple nuclear families would share life together. They'd cook their meals, they'd eat in the courtyard, and they would have a family business that they carried out together. In fact, the Greek word used in the New Testament for this kind of family is oikos. Can you say that? Say it with me. Oikos. Oikos. Say it one more time. Oikos. It's not, a, it's not the sound a pig makes. That's different. This is that extended family. We often translate it household, but that doesn't quite capture the meaning of oikos. And oikos is really this extended family uh, living together, sharing life carrying out a business together. And the typical oikos was made up of grandparents, parents, aunts and uncles, brothers and sisters, cousins, but not just blood relations, also uh, close friends of the family, uh, people who were partnering in the family business with them, even slaves. All these people, blood and non-blood relations, lived together and shared a life together and worked the family business together. Now, there were two primary reasons that everyone who possibly could lived in an oikos. And the first is provision. Oh, sorry, protection. <laughs> the first is protection. And, and that's because they didn't have police cars patrolling their neighborhoods like we do. And if bandits were attacked, the family, if there's just a dad to protect them, they're going to be in trouble. So they needed a big family to protect themselves. And they built their houses like little fortresses so they could lock up that door and protect themselves. There were no windows on the outside walls. The second reason people lived in Oikos is provision. Because if mom and dad get sick and there's nobody to bring in the crops, they're going to starve to death, right? So you need a big family to have a successful family business to provide for your family. And so, when Jesus is going back to his family, this is the kind of family he's going back to. And speaking of family business, do you remember what Jesus' family business was? Anybody remember? Yeah, we, often we translate the, the phrase in Mark 6 as carpenter, but the Greek word is actually tectone. And tectone literally means a builder. And uh, that this could be like a general contractor. So they might have worked in wood, but the vast majority of their work was in stone. So really, these guys are primarily stonemasons and builders, builders out of stone. So, you know, they're tough guys, right? They're used to hauling rock all day. So with this picture of the family of Jesus, let's go back to Matthew 12. Matthew 12 says, Jesus returned, Matthew 4, verse 12, says, Jesus returned to his family home. And then Matthew just simply tells us he went to Capernaum. But he doesn't tell what happened to Nazareth, and he doesn't tell why Jesus left his hometown. And this is why it's so wonderful that we have four Gospels, because each of the Gospels gives us like a different perspective on the life of Jesus. And so together, the Gospels give us the most complete picture. And so it's helpful to, to look from one point of view and then take a look from another point of view. So we're going to jump off now and take a look at Luke chapter 4. If you have a Bible, feel free to open up to it. I'll be putting some scriptures up as well. But Luke tells us what happened in Nazareth that caused Jesus to go to Capernaum. So in Luke chapter 4, verse 16, it says, As was his custom, Jesus' custom, when he got to Nazareth, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Now, as a modern Western reader for much of my life, I just pictured Jesus, the individual, kind of going by himself to the synagogue, right? But that's not the way biblical people operated. They didn't really think of themselves primarily as individuals. They thought of themselves primarily in the context of a, a family, an extended family. And when you go to the synagogue, you don't go by yourself. You go as an extended family. In fact, you sit as an extended family. And so when Jesus is going to the synagogue, he's going with his oikos, with his family. And 
it says here that Jesus was invited to be the, the speaker that day. Even though he wasn't tr traditionally trained as a rabbi, he was already speaking with such authority and demonstrating such power that they were recognizing him as a rabbi. So they invited him to speak in his hometown synagogue. And so it says, he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll, and he found the place where it is written. Now, again, if, if we haven't, uh, don't have a picture, it's hard to kind of see what's going on here. And the truth is, we haven't discovered the synagogue in Nazareth yet, but we have discovered a number of first century synagogues. So here's uh, a picture of a synagogue. Uh, it's actually in Magdala, where Mary Magdalene is from, right near to Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee. And uh, if we look a little bit closer, we can see that there is a, a scroll room. It's called a Geniza, uh, and that's the next slide. And that scroll room or scroll vault is a place where they could lock away the scrolls in a, in a cabinet because they're very, very expensive, very valuable. But on the this, on this Sabbath, they would roll out this cabinet from that little vault up to the front of the synagogue. And then uh, the synagogue attendant would take out the scroll, hand it to the rabbi, and then the rabbi would go to the middle to where there was a scroll table, which you can also see in this first century synagogue. And the rabbi would lay it on the scroll table, kind of like I have this podium up here, and he would unroll it to the place where he was going to read for that day. So that's exactly what uh, Jesus did. And as he unrolled it, he unrolled it to the place that we would call Isaiah 61. And Luke picks up the, the account in verse 17. He says, he unrolled the scroll and he found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What an incredible promise Jesus was reading from Isaiah. It's the promise of the messianic jubilee, that that, that great anointed one, that king, the son of David, is coming. The, the prophet Isaiah was promising that he was coming to ultimately liberate his people and set them free. And this was the promise that the people of Israel had been counting on and anticipating for century after century. And they had endured oppression uh, from, from foreign pagan armies. First the Assyrians, and then the Babylonians, and then the Greeks, and now the Romans are occupying uh, their land and, and oppressing them with taxes. And uh, through all these centuries, the, the Jewish people are anticipating this coming of the Messiah. And so when Jesus read this passage, it was like everyone would have been just holding their breath, just wondering, what is Jesus going to say about this incredible promise? And Luke goes on in verse 20, it says, he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant. The attendant would have put it away in the cabinet there. And then Jesus sat down because in that culture, the teachers would sit down to teach. They had a Moses seat. Instead of a podium, they had a Moses seat. Now, we tend to stand up to teach, which is good for me because I'm a pacer a little bit. But Jesus sat down to teach. And it says, the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. They were just waiting. They were just watching to see what Jesus was going to say and do. And then Jesus began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. There must have been a gasp in the synagogue. Today, Jesus says, after all these centuries, today this scripture has been fulfilled. And look at what Luke says. All spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? This is our hometown boy, right? Way to go, Jesus. This is it. It's happening. I mean, the, 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 the excitement must have just been explosive. Now, if, if Jesus had ended his message right there, gone to the fellowship hall for punch and cookies, 
he would have been like the most popular guy in Nazareth ever, right? Everyone would have been inviting him over for dinner. It would have been great. But Jesus didn't stop there. He goes on. And in fact, he teaches from the Bible that God's promise is not only for the Jewish people, but it's for all the families of the earth as God mandated Abraham and Sarah. And Jesus shows examples in the Old Testament where God chose to bless Gentiles. And Jesus was showing the people of Nazareth that this this messianic jubilee, this coming kingdom, this good news is not just for a select few, but it's for everyone. That this is a promise for all people, Jews and Gentiles, devout and pagan, that all are welcomed into this kingdom and into this family. This good news is for everyone. And those centuries of bitterness and entitlement that had been simmering in the hearts of of those people just kind of overflowed. Look at how Luke describes it in verse 29. It says, They rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so they could throw him down the cliff. Now you can see in this next picture that Nazareth is built on the southern it's sort of the northern ridge of the Jezreel Valley, and there's lots of cliffs there. And it'd be easy to read this and assume that this is just a random act of mob violence. But in fact, the, the Old Testament law stipulates that a blasphemer and a heretic is to be stoned to death. And the rabbis explain the way that should happen, that you should take a person to a height at least twice the height of a man, so 10 feet high or more, You're to tie their hands behind their back, and you're to push them off. And if the fall doesn't kill them, then you drop stones on them from that height. I mean, it's brutal, isn't it? And it is the most extreme, the most explicit kind of rejection that they could possibly give to this vision that Jesus has given. And You know, the the question that for so many years as a modern Western reader, I forgot to ask was, where is Jesus oikos? Where's the oikos? Do you remember the purposes of oikos? Protection and provision. Why aren't they protecting him? Jesus has four brothers. He would have had uncles and cousins that were part of this family business. These are tough stone cutters, right? Why aren't they standing around Jesus saying, hey, not on my watch, you don't touch him. Right, that's what the oikos does. Moms, wouldn't you be grabbing your son's leg saying, don't you dare hurt my son. Where's Mary? Not a word. In fact, in Matthew it says, uh, in Matthew 13, Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. Guess what the word is? Oikos. (laughs) You see, it wasn't just the people of Nazareth that rejected Jesus and his vision. It was his own family. It was the people closest to him, the people that were supposed to be with him. And I think this must have been one of the most painful moments in Jesus' life. As John says, he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. And What's interesting is that when Jesus was baptized, John's gospel tells us that there were three guys who were really interested in Jesus. When John the Baptist said Jesus was the Lamb of God, they they were like, hey, we want to find out more about Jesus. And those three guys were Simon, Andrew, and probably John. And they all lived in the town of Capernaum. And it's interesting, look at what Luke says that when, when this crowd is trying to, to stone him to death, in verse 31 it says, but passing through their midst, he went away. We don't know exactly how that happened, some kind of a miraculous cloaking device. I don't know what Jesus just passed through the midst of this enraged crowd. And then look what it says. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee. Isn't it interesting that immediately he heads to this town where he's got potential friends. It's just about a half day's journey from Nazareth down to Capernaum on foot. And uh, Capernaum sits on, on the north shore 
of this lake that we call the Sea of Galilee. It's kind of confusing. Call it a sea, but it's really a beautiful freshwater lake. And, and it is fantastically beautiful. It's, it's less populated today than it was at the time of Jesus. And so when you're there, you can just imagine what it was like in biblical times. And you can see from this shot that Capernaum sits right on the north shore of the lake. Uh, it's a fishing town, and it was quite a vibrant town, maybe 1,500 people, maybe a couple thousand people. And archaeologists have extensively excavated it because it's not inhabited today. And you can see in the picture there, they've uncovered the ancient synagogue, and they've uncovered a number of houses uh, from the time of Jesus in Capernaum. Now, the Gospels tell us that when Jesus came to Capernaum, he taught in the synagogue with great authority, and he, uh, he liberated a man who was demonized from spiritual oppression. And so, as uh, you can see, this is the front of the synagogue as it's been kind of reconstructed today. And when you enter in, uh, this is what the interior of the synagogue looks like. And this white limestone synagogue, it actually dates a couple hundred years after the time of Jesus, but it's built directly on the first century foundations of the synagogue that Jesus taught in and where he healed. And so it's amazing to stand there and to see that this is where Jesus was teaching and healing. But Luke goes on and he tells us what happened after that synagogue gathering. It says in Luke 4, verse 38, he arose and he left the synagogue and he entered Simon's house. So Simon, who we know as Peter, right? Simon invites Jesus into his oikos. That's what the word is there for house, oikos. The extended family and the house that they share together. It says, now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now, right next to the synagogue, is, as you can see in the picture here, are a number of these ancient houses that have been discovered. Now, let me just describe it for you a little bit. You can see here the outer door uh, of the remains there. That's where you would enter from the outside. It would have a heavily barred thick wooden door there that you could lock and bar. And uh, that led into the central courtyard of the house. And this is where the extended family would gather, where the meals would be cooked and shared together, where the business was carried out. In fact, you can see there's even a little clay oven. There's a, a grain grinder. Uh, there's a mortal and pestle. You can see this is kind of where the life of the oikos takes place. And that central courtyard connects to all the different rooms of the house which surround the courtyard. And that's where the individual nuclear families would sleep at night, where they would store things and so forth. Now here's an artist's reconstruction of one of these houses from Capernaum. So again, you can see the outer door where they would enter from the street. And that leads into the courtyard uh, in the middle there. And then all the way around the courtyard are the rooms of the house. And there is one, you can see the cutaway there shows one room in this house was larger than the rest. So I'm just giving you a picture of how the family operated in Jesus' time. And what's amazing is that one block from the synagogue, just south of the synagogue, right there, just less than a stone's throw, archaeologists discovered an ancient house and the remains of that house and the discoveries there have conclusively determined it is the actual house of Simon and Andrew. So it's amazing. We can see the actual remains of the house where Jesus was invited into. And if we, uh, you can see there's kind of a modern church that's built over the ruins to protect it and to give access to it. And it's a little hard to make out because there's a series of ancient churches that were built over this house. But if we take a closer look, you can actually see the threshold of the door of the house there on kind of the left side of the picture. That literally is the threshold that they stepped over when Simon invited him in. And you can see some of the paving stones of the courtyard, uh, which kind of wrapped around and was kind of formed the middle of that house. And right in the middle, you can see the main room of the house uh, and this is the place where they would have been gathering, probably where Peter's mother-in-law uh, served the meal to them and so forth. And so uh, the drawing that I showed you before is actually 
the reconstruction of the house of Simon and Andrew. So we have an amazingly accurate picture of this setting. Now, uh, as we can picture, uh, Simon and his brother Andrew lived with him, and his in-laws lived with him, and, and other members of this oikos all lived together. Uh, to have a famous rabbi come and have a meal in their house would have brought honor to their house. And so they all would have been very excited, you know, to have the rabbi there. Kind of, it'd be kind of like having Henry and Gwen, Pastor Henry, to come over to your house for dinner. It would be like something special, right? You'd feel kind of special about that. But in, in those times, people were very careful about who they invited into their oikos. Remember? Protect and provide. The oikos is for the oikos. And so having a famous rabbi in would have been great, but they, they never would have let somebody into their house that would bring shame to their family. See? It was a closed system. There was no windows on the outside walls. All the windows faced in to the middle. But as Luke goes on, he tells us that Jesus did something very radical. It says in verse 40, Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. This was radical. Jesus opened up the door of the oikos and he invited everyone in. I mean, if the demon-possessed are invited in, then you know everyone's invited in, right? That's, that's a pretty low bar on the invitation list. You can just see kind of Peter sidling up to his mother-in-law. Hey, mom. We're going to have some people over tonight. They're not our normal crowd, but let's just trust Jesus on this one. Jesus, he, it was like he took the oikos, which was this inward-focused, for-itself uh, family, and he turned it inside out. He showed them a different way to be a family. Even though he was a single man with no children who had been rejected by his own family, Jesus built a new kind of family. Not just a nuclear family, but an extended family. Not just a biological family, but a spiritual family. And not just a family that seeks to serve itself, but a family that seeks and saves the lost. Jesus built a family that was for others, a family that was on mission together. Now, don't think that this was an isolated event. And when you read through the Gospels, you'll start to notice how often Jesus takes his disciples out on mission and then returns to this house and to this family. Again and again, we see that. And, and what we notice is that this family and this house have become the center of Jesus' mission. Let, let's just take a quick look in Mark's Gospel. In Mark chapter 2, Mark chapter 1 describes exactly the story that I've just told you from Luke. Mark chapter 2, he says that Jesus had gone out with his disciples, and then it says when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. Guess what the Greek word is? Oikos. He's in his family. Already, this has become his home and his family. It says that many were gathered together, so there was no more room, not even at the door. You can picture it, can't you? That whole courtyard was full of people all the way overflowing to the outer door. And it says uh, that these four men came bringing a paralytic man. You remember the story? They came, but they couldn't get to Jesus because the house was full. So what did they do? Well, there was actually a set of steps in the courtyard. You can still see them today in there. And those steps went up to the rooftop. That's where they would dry fish and fruit and sleep in the summertime. And so... They took him up to the roof. They dug a hole in the roof where Jesus was, and they let the man down, right? That's all happening in this family, in this oikos. Then Jesus again takes the disciples out, seeking and saving the lost. And then when they return, in Mark 3, verse 20, it says this, Then he went home, back to the house, right? And the crowd gathered again so they could not even eat. So the courtyard's full of people. Someone's probably sitting on the clay oven. <laughs> they can't cook the meal, right? This is, this is just the, the, what happens. It's a, it's a large family that gathers together. And it says, 
when his family heard it, meaning Jesus' biological family back in Nazareth, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. They think he's gone crazy, right? And so what do you do if a member of your family's gone crazy? You go out and you find them and you bring them home and you nurse them back to health, right? And that's exactly what happened. If we look at that picture of the house again, uh, we can see exactly what happens now. Because when his mother and brothers come back, they discover the house is full of people. Look at Mark 31, 331. His mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, your mother and brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. You see how Jesus has redefined the family? He has said that what defines his family is that it is those who relate to God as their father, to each other as their brothers and sisters, who have spiritual parents and are operating as spiritual parents, and their purpose is to do the will of God. Their purpose is to fulfill God's mission on this earth. You see, this is the new kind of family that Jesus formed. It's not just a family for itself, but it's a family that seeks and saves the lost. It's a family that welcomes in the outcasts. It's a family that goes out looking for lost people and brings them home and welcomes them into God's family. Now, maybe you're wondering why I've gone to such lengths <laughs> to describe these houses and the family and the way that Jesus did this. Well, it's because I believe that Jesus is showing us the way that we are meant to live. In John 14, 6, Jesus is in the upper room with the disciples on that last night before he's arrested uh, by the, the officials. And he gives the final of his great I am statements. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. What an amazing description of Jesus. And I don't know about you, but I spent most of my Christian life focusing on the truth of Jesus, studying the Bible, trying to understand Jesus' teaching, understanding who Jesus is. And that's incredibly important because Jesus is the truth who sets us free, right? But I would look at the life of Jesus, and in my better moments, I would aspire to live a life that looked like his life, but most of the time, the life of Jesus seemed out of reach to me. Like it seemed like a disconnect. I didn't know how I could ever live a life that looked like Jesus' life. But for some reason, I never paid much attention to the way of Jesus. Have you ever really thought about the way of Jesus? That in, a Jesus, in addition to Jesus' teaching, he also modeled a way of life. There were rhythms to Jesus' life. <laughs> there were ways that Jesus gathered with people. There, there were patterns that he followed in his life. And when, uh, when we start to realize that discipleship, to be a disciple, is not just to believe in the truth of Jesus, it's also to follow the way of Jesus. And what I discovered, it's almost like a little mathematical formula, that when you learn to practice the way of Jesus and you study and believe the truth of Jesus, it produces more of the life of Jesus in your life <laughs> and actually can multiply that life in the life of others. And so understanding not only the truth of Jesus, but his way is so important for us as disciples. Do you remember Jesus' invitation? He simply said, follow me. He said, listen to me, but he also said, follow me. So believe in the truth of Jesus, but also pattern your life after his life. This is what it means to be a disciple. That if we're going to follow Jesus, then we're going to look at the pattern of his life and we're going to learn to live that way. And if Jesus created a new way to be a family, 
then shouldn't we be seeking after that as well? I remember it was about 12 or 13 years ago, and this realization was first really coming home to me. And, and I, was, I was coming to terms with the fact that there were large parts of my life that were not patterned after Jesus' life. And I remember I was standing on the doorway of the front door of my house, and I, I looked down the street that I live on to the left and to the right, and I realized the only people that I knew on my block were people that went to my church. Because Pam and I very much saw our house like a little fortress, kind of like that oikos for the oikos mentality. We saw our mission as being kind of centered at the church building and the programs and the services of our church were heavily invested in that. But when we came to our home, we were kind of withdrawing from that and we're kind of just living our life. And as a result, I didn't even know any of the people on my street that didn't know Jesus. And that, that convicted me so deeply. And I realized that I wasn't following the way of Jesus, that we weren't patterning our life as a family on the pattern of Jesus. You know, Jesus was very involved in the synagogue. He taught and he preached in the synagogue. But actually, he centered his mission in the home of Simon and Andrew. And that's where he welcomed the lost. And I realized that, that I needed to make some changes in my life. And so Pam and I decided that we were going to intentionally start to learn how to follow the way of Jesus more closely as a family, as a couple. And we started being more present in our neighborhood. We started intentionally getting out in the front of our house and actually meeting the people that lived in our neighborhood. And as we met them, we started to extend friendship to them. And as we extended friendship, we started to invite them into our home and to have people over for meals. And we started to get to know their kids. And, and they started to invite us into their homes. And, and we started to th think more about how we could reach our neighborhood as a family. And at the same time, we also invited some believers from our church to, to gather with us in our home and to kind of consider this journey of discipleship and to grow as disciples who were following the way and the truth of Jesus. And as we did that, we asked them to join us on our mission to reach out to the neighborhood. And as we built a sense of spiritual family together, what happened was the people in our neighborhood who would never accept our invitation to come to church with us, they started to accept our invitations to come into our home and into this spiritual family. And through that process, we started to see some of our neighbors come to faith in Jesus. And eventually, some of them connected with our church. And we also saw some of those disciples uh, who were journeying with us in this mission learning how to make disciples. And some of them kind of went off and started their own spiritual families that were reaching out uh, to those around us. And it, it was a wonderful thing. And, and what happened for me and Pam was this only strengthened our marriage. It only deepened our experience of being a family together. And we found it was such a healthier and such a more fruitful way to live. Now, uh, Pam and I, uh, we stepped down from leading the local church about five years ago so that we could invest fully in the wider ministries that God has called us to. And so that meant that we sold our house and we moved to a different neighborhood. And we moved into a, a neighborhood of a lower socioeconomic uh, kind of climate, much more diverse, um, more crime in the area, uh, just a different feeling neighborhood and, and a wonderful neighborhood. And uh, as we did, we came in with the mindset that we wanted to live like a family uh, that was carrying out the mission of Jesus. And so we immediately started to meet our neighbors. Uh, there's two young men who are married to each other that live on the one side of us. And there's a family originally from Mexico of three generations living together on the other side of us. And then we started to meet rest of the people on our block. And as we did that, we started inviting them into our home because it's the way of Jesus. And as we built friendships with them, we started a rhythm where once a month we have a neighborhood dinner and we invite all the neighbors on our block uh, to bring some food. We keep it super lightweight, uh, potluck 
just bring whatever you want. Come on over. We'll have games. If it's around a holiday, we'll do something related to the holiday. And that's become now the rhythm of our lives, of gathering with our neighbors. And we invited some of the people from the church that we attend to join us in this mission and to go on a journey of discipleship with us. And this is new. We're just getting started in our neighborhood. But it has been so exciting and so much fun to build community with those who don't know Jesus and people who would not come to our church if we invited them, but they would come to our home and into our lives. And eventually, it's our prayer that they will come to know Jesus and they will become a part of our family. So what does it mean to build a Jesus-shaped family? Some people think that you have to kind of choose between being fully devoted to your family or fully devoted to your mission. And we can see that sometimes, even like sometimes missionaries feel they have to send their kids to boarding school to be fully invested in their mission. But we know that that has definite drawbacks, doesn't it? And so I know for me and Pam, when we started off our marriage, we said we want to do both things. We want to we be family and mission. We want to have a healthy family, raise our boys to love Jesus, and we want to lead a vibrant church that's reaching the lost and extending the kingdom of God. So we were doing these two things, but we thought of them as two separate things, and we we're always kind of juggling them. And the problem was they were always competing with each other, uh, and there was, there was always a tension between them, and we were always trying to balance them, and often we were off balance, and we found it wasn't the easiest way to live. Now, some people go the other way, and they think of their family as mission. And they just focus in on their oikos, and they think, okay, our kids are our mission. We're just going to invest everything in them. And that's okay for a season, like when you have a newborn or somebody's sick. But, but we know that we're called to something bigger than just our own nuclear families. Well, what Jesus did was something revolutionary. He built a family on mission. His mission and his family were integrated into one thing. And his life was the most fruitful life that was ever lived. He lived truly the abundant life. And when he says, follow me, he's inviting us to learn that way of life as well. Which means learning how to make disciples who can make disciples, who make up a family that is on mission together, seeking and saving the lost. And it's been exciting to see many of the leaders of Center Street have been embracing this way of life. Uh, in fact, staying with Greg and Sarah Grinnell, and as we were leaving the house to come to the service tonight, they had some new people that had moved in next door, and they were interacting with them. We were a little late, so I was kind of like, come on, guys, we've got to get going. They're talking to their neighbors, and they're saying, hey, you know, next Saturday, we're having a gathering. Everybody just brings food, and we'd love for you guys to come. They're like, oh, that sounds great. You see, many of the leaders of Center Street are exploring this kind of a Jesus-shaped way of living as a family on mission. And I'm, I'm so excited to see what God is going to do here at Center Street and across Calgary as more and more we embrace the way of Jesus and as we step into what it means to live a Jesus-shaped kind of life. So I want to just uh, pause there and just invite you to take a moment for prayer and just to ask God, what is he saying to you right now? Maybe just think about how you think of your own family. And just ask God, is he giving you a bigger picture of what family could mean? And as you think about that, just ask the Lord, what's the next step of faith that he wants you to take? Jesus, we thank you that you are here 
present with us right now. And we thank you that through your word and by your Holy Spirit, you're speaking faith to each one of our hearts right now. And we pray, Lord, that we would receive the word that you have for us. We pray pray that this seed would take root in the good soil of our hearts and lives. And we pray that you'll give us a new vision for what it means to be a, a family, a spiritual family, a family on mission. And Lord, even if at this point we don't know exactly what that means or how we might do that, just show us what the next step on the journey is. Just help us to take even a mustard seed of faith that you've given us tonight. Help us to exercise that faith so that we could see your kingdom come in greater measure. So that we could see disciples making disciples. So that we could see the lost being found and welcomed into your family. So thank you, Jesus, for being our truth. But we pray tonight, Lord, you would also be our way. That you'll show us the way, Lord, to live this life, this Jesus-shaped life. And that all the glory and the honor and the praise would go to you. So we thank you, Lord, for what you're doing here in Center Street Church. For what you're going to do, Lord, through them across the city of Calgary. And we pray it in your name. Amen. Thanks, Bob, so much for being with us. I know we appreciate that. Didn't we appreciate Bob tonight? I love, I love hearing him. Friends, maybe this resonated. We were praying before that, that there's some of you here tonight that this is going to resonate with. And, and the question is, is what's the next step? Well, the next step is, is the, at the Connect table tonight, if this resonates with you about this new kind of family, then we want to invite you to a taste of spiritual family. We're doing two uh, info nights on March 18th and the 25th from 6.45 to 8 p.m. And if you go to the, the Connect tables, you can pick up this information and get registered. We want to encourage you to take a look at that. Come and experience this because it is life-changing. So thanks for being with us this evening. Our prayer partners will be here following my benediction uh, to pray with you if you have some prayer needs. So now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his precious peace. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God bless you. with us by giving to what God is doing in and through Center Street Church. Click on Give to learn more. If you are in the Calgary and area region, we invite you to visit one of our five campuses next weekend. Click on Find a Campus Near Me and come say hello. We look forward to meeting you and helping you find a place to belong, grow, and learn about God.